0: Before we start the show, if you have not already listened to last week's episode, episode number 27, go and listen to that first. This episode is part two and the conclusion to that interview. But just as a quick refresher, we're talking to Dr. Dejo Sanders, sports scientist, physiologist, supervisor, researcher, coach, but currently his main role is a trainer at professional cycling team, Team DSM. And if you only listen to part of this episode, make it the first half. Dejo schools us on training load and why it's important to consider load as only one part of the bigger picture. Plus, we get to hear what a coach deeply embedded in the pro cycling world is excited about for the future of performance. Welcome to the Cycling Performance Club podcast, the podcast where a panel of scientists, pro cyclists and cutting-edge coaches discuss topics in training, performance and science, and all things cycling.
1: The show is co-hosted by me, Cyrus Monk, a professional cyclist and cycling coach. Me, Dr. Jason Boynton, a sports scientist and
0: cycling coach. And me, Damien Roos, a professional cycling coach. So we don't want to hold you up too long day Joe, so let us know if you have to go
1: yeah i'm, I'm dying to get into training load monitor <laughs> can't leave
2: without that <laughs> i still have time no worries
1: okay okay well thanks a lot for your time i appreciate it I so one of the first studies that i read from you was the you investigated the different types of training load monitoring and then kind of tried to validate them in a sense and associate them with a performance outcomes and training and monitoring for me has always been really interesting. And I, I, it's, and it's kind of opposite for me because one of those things where I have a lot of, I guess, experience using like PMC and things like that. And I think about it a lot, but unfortunately I just haven't gotten to reading a lot of literature on it, except for like your paper and a few others. And I have, I, I looked at it today, my, my, my folder with training load papers is like 52 papers. And I have my justification is that I'm I'm reading a lot of papers that form a good basis into that. Like I'm reading a lot about right now around great exercise tests and determining thresholds and, and things like that and critical power. Um, and I reckon I will mature into training load stuff later because it really, really interests me. But I want to make sure that I'm covering all my bases before I get into that higher tier. But like I reread that, your training load paper today, and I put a new set of eyes on it. And yeah, I I can see why the tree just based on the training load measures that avail- are available, I think we can do better. Yeah. So what are your general thoughts on training load? But also we can talk about your training load paper.
2: Mm. Yeah. Maybe, maybe to start, I guess with a little introduction to the whole training principle in itself, because it's, yeah, yeah. I think it is indeed quite popular in the research and there's been a lot of, yeah, a bit of a proliferation on research into that area in different sports. Um, but the concept of training mode is not particularly new because it's been around since like the 1970s yeah i think eric banister sort of started with, with the whole concept of, of training impulse and i guess it mainly originated from you know those system modeling approaches where we're trying to conceptualize a training process in a sort of a mathematical way and how they sort of define it in its simplest form or how banister conceptualizes that A training session has two main responses. Mm -hmm. So we have a a fitness response, which is sort of the adaptive response to training. And then we have a fatigue response. And then at any point in time, performance is defined by your fitness minus your fatigue. And what they, they tried to use those concepts into a mathematical model. So trying to model those responses or put an equation on that fitness response and on that fatigue response. And then they were looking for an input to that model. And that's, I guess, where the whole training load concept arose because they wanted to put one number on a training session and trying to quantify the overall dose or or stress of that session. And we know you can have multiple sessions. You can have a low intensity, long duration one. You can have a short duration, high intensity one. But from a modeling perspective, that makes it quite complex. So if you can put one number on it objectively on different sessions, then you can use that as your input in your model. And then use that in the end to see if you can predict performance. So I think that's where the whole concept arose from. So trying to, um, yeah, integrate the intensity and duration Mm -hmm. into one number of training dose or training stress. And, then subsequently there have been quite some modifications to that originally proposed training impulse metric. but all based on the same principle, integrating duration, integrating the intensity, and then weighting intensity according to a yeah, method specific weighting factor. Um, so I guess that's where the whole, the whole concept comes from. And yeah, now there's just loads of variables out there. I guess in practice, the ones that are used in cycling, at least are a bit more limited, I would say, I get most will use some form of TSS, yeah. whilst the temperature, especially in sort of the 80s, 90s, most of the research was mainly using those training impulse metrics. Mm-hmm. Um, so from a research perspective, I was reading all that research and I couldn't really find anything on TSS, but in practice, everybody was using TSS. So there was mm-hmm. a bit of a mismatch there. And then with the first study of my PhD, I just yeah, tried to evaluate a, load of diff- of a bunch of different load metrics um, and see how that relates to some of the changes in training response that we observed if we follow that original concept, then the training dose should be in some form related to the training outcome. So that could be physiological adaptation or it could be fatigue. And then in that particular particular study, we had a training period and then pre and post um, testing in the lab and also a field-based trial. And then we just wanted to see if there were differences in the relationship between the training dose that we quantified with those different metrics and some of the responses that we saw pre and post that training period. So simply we did a pre-test 10-week training period, quantified training load with all these different metrics, and then did a post-test again. And then we plotted the percentage improvement in yeah, some, some maximal aerobic fitness variables or thresholds and related that to some of the, um, the training load that we observed in that, that block. Yeah, the the general conclusion for it was that most training metrics relate fairly well to changes in those variables, but there were some between method differences. Um, And then specifically, the training metrics that integrate some sort of information around the individual or integrate some physiological characteristics, those are the ones that had the strongest relationships between the pre and post uh, improvements, basically. So, for example, individualized trim, which integrates the individual's blood lactate, heart rate, blood lactate relationship, TSS, mm-hmm. which integrates the individual's functional threshold power.
1: Yeah,
2: those were the measures that integrate some information about the individual, and that then also had yeah, stronger relationships with that training uh, with the training outcome. So it was sort of a way, looking at it in a dose response measure trying to evaluate the validity of different training load measures. And yeah, in that particular situation, again, a preseason period with not a lot of disturbances because of races and perhaps a bit more of a yeah, lower intensity type uh, training within that block. In that block, it's yeah. That were the relationships shown. It doesn't really mean that that then applies to every training phase or anything else out there, but it, it was one of the, I think, yeah. One of the few studies at least that looks into the, validity of TSS or yeah, the relationship between TSS and changes that we see in the training outcome.
1: No, it was, a, it was a good study and, you know, having another look at it and kind of evaluating the different types of measures of training load today, not being an, an expert in it, but one of the things that kind of stood out was makes perfect sense that we would have at least a measure of threshold that would kind of be relating it specifically to the athlete well, one of the things I see that's concerning in some of them is either an arbitrary loading for the zones that they're determining like it's in the severe zone so we give it a, a weighting of three it's in the it's in the moderate zone so we give it a one it's in the heavy we give it a two but that's not how physiology works and so anything and that's all to me that would be a linear weighting um and uh, and I think I want to st- I'm not. I'm not exactly sure if I can say this or not, but it seems like TSS and heart rate TSS might also be linear weightings. But I got the impression that the eye trimps was not a linear weighting. It look Am I am I right? Where well, had some kind of um, exponential weighting that would be going on, and that to me would makes the most sense. Yeah, uh, as having some kind of en- exponential weight, where at the top of uh, the severe zone is obviously going to be more intensity or uh, more stressing than it would be at the bottom of it,
2: right? Yeah, like for sure, uh, it makes physiologically a lot more sense if it's nonlinear. Um, because yeah, the, the the summated zones method, so Lucia shrimp and Edward shrimp, they indeed use linear weightings arbitrarily chosen. So GS three mm-hmm. zones, which is like weighting factor of one, two, and three for low, moderate, and high intensity. And Edward Shrimp has five zones, and that's weighting of one, two, three, four, five. So that's firstly, it's arbitrarily chosen, and it is a linear weighting factor, which it's not in line with yeah anything out there on physiological response to to exercise. Then you have a few of the other metrics, like I uses an exponential weighting factor, and actually TSS. Um, if you look at it, and I'm for sure not a mathematical aspect, but I also had some chats with Tune about this, and it, it's actually quadratic weighting. Of the exercise intensity, heart rate TSS, I'm not sh- fully sure about because I think it's sort of based on Bannister's training impulse model, and that's an exponential weighting factor that's gender specific. So that might be exponential, but I'm not 100% sure. But at least there are different ways of yeah trying to um, yeah weigh the exercise intensity. But it's yeah already looking at an exponential way would already be better than the linear way, that's for sure. But yeah, in the end, what you're trying to do is quantify the biological response to exercise in one formula. And that's always going to be difficult. So yeah, there's going to be limitations to every load metric. And I've also had the question before, like, what do we, like we should make a better load metric and but, like the the whole reason why it was proposed was to try Mm -hmm. to quantify the training stress of a training session, sort of an objective way, regardless of the type of session, because a lot of the Criticisms training load always gets this, yeah. But you can have two sessions with the same TSS, but one is very high intensity and one is uh, low intensity but very long. That's often a criticism that's given, but that was the whole point, because the point was to give it mm-hmm. being able to give different training sessions, trying to give it one score of physical stress regardless of the the yeah the the intensity or duration of the. I mean that you can compare different sessions, so to speak. Let's say it that way but that, that's obviously a, lim- a limitation of training load quantification in general that will always be there if you follow the general principle of trying to integrate it within within one formula so i'm also not sure how we if we can go about a way where we can fully get around those limitations and uh, the basic principle would be to have training load metric as a, a training load metric as part of your monitoring strategy but obviously not the only thing you look at Like you're not going to only at your weekly TSS. You're also going to look at what the training hours were. You're also going to look at what the intensity of the sessions were, or the amount of high intensity sessions. If you then use frequency of the sessions, exactly. If you use all that combined, then in my view, it's useful, but yeah, for sure. You should, you shouldn't only look at TSS, but you also shouldn't only look at training uh, hours. Volume. Exactly. So yeah, that's or it, kilometers or anything like that. Exactly. Yeah, it, it, it's with everything, and that's obviously what most people don't want to hear because I always want to hear yeah, what should I do? What, what, what metrics should I use? Yeah. What one is the best? But there, it for me, the correct answer is it depends. Yeah, exactly. And <laughs> yeah, they, there's no one right answer, it's just use a combination of metrics, same as with the power, hardware, and RP discussion we had before. If you use a multitude of metrics and you know the limitations of all the metrics, then you can interpret those numbers in the right context and by putting the numbers together then you can make a judgment about what that training week looked like but just focusing on one single thing is yeah it's for sure uh not advised and but that's i think some of the criticism that some sports scientists often give to like the training or research because then they're like criticizing everything how training is calculated um it's not as simple, but like...
1: That's not what it's supposed to do, no. right? You're criticizing it for what it's not supposed to do, yeah, Exactly. Right? So if you like, if you use training
2: load alongside... Why can't
1: my car fly?
2: Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. But like if you, get, if you use a multitude of metrics, you, for sure we look at overall training volume as a basic thing. We look at this uh, frequency of high-intensity sessions and we look at overall training load for the week. If you use all of that together, I think then you have a good idea of what's going on.
1: I, I've always kind of going back and forth between the heart rate base and the power base. And I actually use it in the same model because I think sometimes heart rate's better, like if it's hot, <laughs> you know, versus when it's uh, cool or if it's the second day after a hard workout, I think you could probably get maybe if it's the second day and you have someone that has a lot of type twos fibers and doesn't recover as well, then yeah, that heart rate uh, training stress is probably going to be more accurate on the second day. I think, you have to make a decision somewhere. Like it's, you're just putting your hands up in the air about which one's going to be better, the power versus the heart rate. One thing, one kind of random thing I have been thinking about what the heart rate model is one time, just for, just for shits and giggles, I put a heart rate monitor on myself and slept with it and then uploaded it into training peaks to see what my training stress score would be. And for eight hours of sleep, I got 150 TSS. Now, something's not right there (laughs) like i'm just riding my bike in my sleep um and so one of the things i just kind of a random thought of i I came across this term called orthostatic heart rate and it makes me think of like there should be something different than a resting heart rate for the bottom end of the of where it's still calculating load right because an orth in my understanding if my understanding right like an orthostatic heart rate is basically a heart rate from when you're standing um, as opposed to like laying down. So, so basically not a resting heart rate is the bo- as the basement. Cause if you're at a resting heart rate and you're, and it's still telling you that you're are, uh, um, you have a training load, then, then it's not really measuring training load properly in my opinion. But I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but, uh, kind of a random thought around the whole heart rate thing uh heart rate based models i don't know if you see that in like the Trimp's models or
2: just that's just unique to HRCSs. yeah i think in, in general um with uh, using it in a situation like that i think then obviously the duration is so long so that's then just going even though the in intensity even though you're lying down is low measured with the heart rate then they're still gonna move the score up somewhat because of the long duration but I guess, given that it's terms training load, we should maybe also measure it during training sessions, mm. not when we're sleeping. But um, um, <laughs> yeah, I, don't, I don't.
1: I just.
2: <laughs> I didn't. I didn't
1: keep. The, I didn't keep the data in there. I hope my athletes aren't listening to this and getting any
2: ideas. But um, <laughs> I like the the whole standing and like standing and lying down measurements. I, I don't have much experience with it, but I've I've been reading. A little bit into HRV research, and I know they also make they differentiate between sort of supine and standing measurements. And yeah, I think that's quite interesting to think about that. That I guess adding a little bit of stress by standing up can already expose you. I don't know, might, might expose something different in the data. I just find it super interesting. I don't have, I don't, I haven't looked into that much yet, but is perhaps something in there more from a training response perspective um and monitoring that than perhaps relating it to training load um but yeah it is for sure interesting
1: yeah i'll cue you into two papers that maybe um i know you do some environmental physiology stuff with uh uh, dsm uh but uh, one of the arguments that, I, or a couple of the papers that I used to make the argument around when to use heart rate-based TSS or when to use power-based TSS is one, you've probably heard of Lorenzo et al with uh, heat acclimation improves exercise performance. That came out in like 2010 of Chris Minson's lab. But then there was a follow-up paper like in 2016 from Blumby's lab. And he, like, he's kind of, you know, the debunker physiologist, right? And what you could see out of those two papers kind of put together was that if you exercised and you had one condition was hot and one was cool, but they were matched for power, then you would get a higher heart rate and cardiovascular stress in the hot condition, right? And then that study, those individuals ended up performing better. So... But if you would have measured their training stress score for those athletes during that training uh, intervention, they would have came out with the same TSS. Um, And then Lundby's study basically accounted for that um, difference in cardiovascular load. I think he did like his graded exercise test in the heat or something like that. So basically what he had was the matched cardiovascular stress between the two groups but one was the hot group was at a lower power. And when those athletes came out on the other side, then their performances were not different. And in those situations, then the cooler group with the higher power, but you know even though they were matched for cardiovascular stress, the cooler group would have had more TSS measured and you would have probably predicted that they would have had a bigger improvement in power. And so those two papers put together, is one of the things that I argue well, should we be using power-based stuff, especially when athletes are heat acclimating or riding in the heat or riding at altitude, it would probably be more accurate if we were using sometimes a physiological measure. And whether that might be DFA Alpha 1, that measure being turned into a properly weighted way of measuring training load, uh, I think that might be the future for DFA Alpha 1 if it turns out to be a, a usable measure in the field. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that or thought about that at all.
2: Or... Yeah, I guess there's a few things to that. It's also perhaps not the most surprising if you just look at the like the definitions within sort of the training process. So I guess you probably have read in a lot of the training process conceptualizations, they talk about internal load and external load.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. They're
2: yeah. both load metrics, but external load would then be more based on an objective amount of uh, objective quantification of the amount of work that athlete has been doing. Yep. And the internal load is more of an indication of the physiological or biological stress. And obviously it's mm-hmm. the internal load in the end that has yep. the impact yep. on your adaptation. So exactly. that training load metric, so one that integrates heart rate, for example, is the one that's also going to be theoretically the most closely linked to adaptation. I think that. One of the studies that you mentioned there also shows that, and obviously TSS falls yeah, yeah, yeah. more within the external load spectrum. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And obviously if there are situations where, like altitude, for example, we also go a lot, um, if we utilize altitude training a lot. There, obviously, the, the yeah using more heart rate based metrics becomes of greater importance, especially if you're like going through those adaptation days, prescribing intensity on heart rate yeah, it's going to be a smarter way of going about it than doing it based on power because just at the same power heart rate can be substantially different in those first days when I am adapting yeah. to the altitude again. So that that's again, is it comes back to the same point that we discussed before. It's going to be that uh, we have all these different metrics and they all measure it slightly different and but those differences actually make them useful. And then it's up to the sports scientist or a coach to make his judgment on what metric to focus on more based on the context. So if the context that it's very hot or that they're at an altitude yeah. uh, camp, you start to focus more on a heart rate-based metric. So that's like when riders are getting more into a fatigue stay or when a load is really high, you might focus more on some of the subjective measures that you have. I think it's, you try to measure everything and how you interpret that number, that depends a little bit on the context.
1: Yeah. One thought I've, I've had, and I don't know if you have had this thought as well, in terms of the whole TSS thing is, Why did they bother? I mean, it seems like they were just trying to build off the power thing. Um, But heart rate monitors are simple. They're easy to use. And I kind of wonder, should we have just, within the whole and Training Peaks universe, if they would have just, did they just do TSS because it was sexy? Because they wouldn't have known if it had an advantage or not because they didn't do a validation study on it. But I guess you could make some arguments around why power would be better, but they wouldn't have really known because they didn't do any great validation studies on it. and I think heart rate based training load would have been would have been all right, but it seems like now we're we're using an unusually high amount of uh, I guess what I'm trying to say is we use it's disproportionate. It seems like that we would use power for measuring load as opposed to heart rate. And I kind of think it's probably more down to the culture uh than the actual usefulness, I think. You know, power came out and they're like, oh, this is something that goes with power. And for me and maybe you as well, I'm thinking, well, I know about banisters been around for since the 70s. Why wouldn't we just use that or just improve the measures of load that are based around heart rate? Like the so yeah, right now I'm the term I use on here is is path dependency. And I use TSS right now mostly because of path dependency. As I've been using it, and eventually, I, I see myself getting out of it or looking for something a, a better measure. Hmm. Um, but one one olive branch I will extend to TSS. I mean, even even beyond, like I don't want to sound like a hypocrite because I do use it uh, quite a bit. But um, I actually wrote a blog around the external versus internal loads, and I made the hypo. It was a blog that was in a um, in a physio, like a physical therapist website. And they were talk- doing talks around cycling and different things in cycling. And uh, actually, it was um, Paulo that handed it off to me because he's like, I don't want to write this. <laughs> you can you can have my PhD student do it. And uh, I've made an argument that the, ex- the external load that you measure that, that's developed through PMC, even though it's not a great measure of internal stress, it might actually be a decent measure for biomechanical stress and preventing injury in that way because in, in cycling we would want you know if if, if you're in uh, soccer or rugby or something like that now they have a lot of the training load management with the accelerometers and things like that to kind of try to predict injury with these athletes well we don't do that as much because the injury a lot of times that we have to worry about in cycling is sudden and acute the overuse injuries isn't nearly as much but I made this hypothesis. Well, if you one advantage you could get out of using an external load based model is maybe you could avoid overuse injuries better because it's closer to the biomechanics, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. I, I guess with that was also um, one of the training intensity distribution studies that we looked at, and one of the hypotheses there was that you show that 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 those acute spikes. In the power are obviously then reflected in that zone 3 accumulation and with the heart rate you don't really get those spikes then reflected in that bucket because of the lag and heart rate then uh, yeah we also thought then perhaps the a measure of power which integrates more some of these acute spikes or is able to measure these acute spikes might be a greater indication of some of the neuromuscular or muscular strain um, so that's yeah that could potentially be an element about the injury an overload relationship. I'm, I'm not, I'm not fully sure about it. And also just in terms of looking at the load metrics that we have, like they all have limitations and TSS has a for sure limitation about the reasons that we just mentioned, um, some of the heart rate metrics just in their calculation are also quite limited, but mm-hmm. like at least in the one study that I did where the relationship wasn't that bad and it actually came out as one of the better ones in that sort of early preparation, I think it becomes more problematic. In general, regardless of the metric when you have more races going on, more intensity shifts, whatever, then it becomes perhaps a bit more problematic. But using the heart rate or using the power it becomes more problematic. I think both just a measure of training load, with as we discussed before, trying to simplify it into one number might then be yeah, problematic in itself, regardless of the equation. And a lot of the heart rate based metrics, as you say with the linear weighting factors, also have clear limitations to it. So yeah. I guess it's just they all have limitations and we know about it and we just try to interpret that um, yep. interpret them in the right context
1: yeah that's way i kind of look at it is like it, i'd rather have some kind of dim light looking at the issue as opposed to no light and the way you can use the dim light is to know the ins and the outs of how that is calculated and know its limitations and, uh, and that type of thing is and not kind of rely on it as its dogma and then also realize what other measures you're taking that have overlap with the measures that are kind of wonky. And so maybe you can build your story from two different ways, right?
2: and yeah, I think maybe one other thing, because I guess with the whole PMC and other calculations that result from TSS like electronic training load and, and that type of stuff, I guess also something I wouldn't advocate is trying to really chase one of those numbers. Like if you have a certain... CDL and you saw you had it last year that you then when you practice like when you prepare again for the news and that you necessarily try to chase that when mm-hmm. it's way lower than you had at a certain time point before yeah that's probably a sign that in terms of training consistency or you had some disturbances that result that you not being able to have that training mode that you perhaps wanted but just blindly um, trying to chase a certain number. Perhaps set arbitrarily or something that you have achieved in the past. Yeah, that's you know, given the limitations that we discussed, that's not a approach I would really advocate. So obviously we monitor it and we look how it's progressing, but it's I wouldn't advise necessarily chase that metric per se.
1: That touches on a principle that we've talked about on the on the show before, and that's called Goodhart's Law. And that law is, as soon as a measure becomes a target, it no longer becomes a good measure so you basically describe that in the real world and I agree
0: hey Damien here I just want to take another break to say thanks for stopping by and listening to the show and remind you that if you find value in the show it would mean a lot to us if you shared our content with other cycling performance enthusiasts in your life also if you're seeking guidance in the world of performance cycling beyond what is delivered in our weekly podcast we're keen to help you My co-host and I offer coaching services for cyclists and consulting services for cycling coaches and teams. Our objective is to provide support tailored to your specific goals and increase the level of confidence you have in your cycling performance pursuits. So definitely check us out online and contact us with any inquiries you may have. Links to each of our websites can be found in the show notes of this episode. And with that, let's get back into it.
1: My kind of conclusion questions are just one sports scientist to another and for the listeners do you have any papers that they've looked at recently or like labs that are doing some research you're watching i mean we talked about the dfa alpha one is any other papers that have come out that don't have your name on it maybe that you're like this is this is really
2: good stuff this is a good paper i'm watching this right now Mm -hmm. Um, like i think one of the at least if we talk about cycling research one of the nice emerging Topics that is sort of coming in the last few months is sort of the concept around durability of fatigue resistance. And yeah, we've also done one study on it, but there's multiple groups that are looking into it. For example, Peter Leo's group together with James Brack, they're also looking into sort of similar concepts.
1: So is that the paper you did with Lambert? Um, Rob. Yes. yes. Rob,
2: yeah. So Basically, like we spoke about the whole testing principles at the start, like what test would we do? We talked about power profiling, etc. But actually, well, yeah, what's now emerging in the research, but with what's been around in practice for quite a quite a while already is just assessing almost the those same variables but done in a fatigue state or after a previously accumulated quite some quite some workload. And I think that's quite an interesting topic that yeah might be might differentiate very successful to less successful professional cyclists. Just your ability to do a high power output after already accumulating a certain amount of kilojoules or we looked at kilojoules per per kilogram um, I think that's a quite an interesting topic that still has a lot of yeah um, figuring out to do and still other factors to evaluate but I think that's yeah quite an interesting topic that is that is emerging and I think that will also directly influence practice that we shouldn't necessarily only be focusing on fresh maximum mean power outputs but also when they've already previously accumulated some yeah, some workload and based on our observations in practice and also in the study is that that can be a differentiating factor, for example, between young and upcoming cyclists and more established successful cyclists or just in general between less successful and successful cyclists. So you might have two cyclists that do the same 20 minute power uh, relatively if we're looking at climbers, for example, but one is able to do that still at the end of, is able to do a high percentage of their max at the end of a race. And the other, perhaps younger cyclist, drops off quite significantly when he's in the race. So then in the end, the race performance is better for the one that can maintain a high percentage of their max. So I think that's, yeah, just um, obviously I'm a bit biased because I'm also in, uh, involved with this research at the moment. But I think that's exciting. Um, yeah. And then, yes, something else that, I've, that some of the papers that have been coming out in recent years about muscle fiber typology and relationship to... Um, fatigue development within a session or just sensitivity to trade periods of overload. Yeah. I guess it's something that you were sort of aware of anyway was never really shown that nicely into research. Yeah. And I think that's, yeah, that's, I think it's super nice research that they're doing with that group. I, I think it's a group from the University of Ghent in Belgium. Um, I think that's really interesting. Mm.
1: Yeah, I know that to me, when I hear that stuff, I think of John Hawley but I'm not sure how much, how heavy his stuff is in that right now. Um, But you talk about fatigue resistance and it kind of reminded me of the education first test and the education first test probably relates to that fatigue principle that you're talking about. Like how great is your five minute power after a five hour race? Right. And that seems to be one of the things we're talking with Um, Cyrus last week was this as you develop as a cyclist you just become better at being able to put that crazy high power at longer and longer duration races and like i said the ef claims to have this test that's supposed
2: to do that
1: but yeah have you heard of that test do you have an opinion on it
2: yeah i haven't specifically heard about that test um but yeah i guess the principle is just that you would do some sort of an effort or key intervals well, after like towards the end of a ride, when you're already should have accumulated some fatigue or you've expended a certain amount of uh, kilojoules, I think that's the main principle. So, like how, how I would see how you could add it into practice is that you're gonna have for different rider profiles, for example, for climbers or sprinters, you're gonna have key sessions that you're gonna do to prepare them. And for yeah, for, for let's say for a GC rider, you might have some longer efforts continuous or intermittent doesn't really matter per se uh, for this example, but you might use those sessions to specifically prepare somebody for a climbing race or a ground tour. So you you could do those sessions either in a a sort of fresh state. So after an hour of easy riding, you do that, uh, do that interval set. And then you could do the same interval set also perhaps later in the, uh, in the preparation whilst already having done some sort of a pre-fatiguing protocol. So for for example, some, moderate efforts before you start that key interval session then then from a practical perspective you're working towards their goals because you're doing sessions that are working towards preparing them for their main goals but at the same time you're also getting an insight if they're able to deliver the same numbers on that interval uh, block whatever you defined after they've previously accumulated some some work so then you get a bit of an idea about yeah, that fatigue resistance bit I'm also not sure if fatigue resistance is the right terminology because it's perhaps more workload resistance where you're like, mm-hmm. after the same amount of workload, you're just less fatigued. So it's not per se resistance to fatigue or resistance to workload. Was well, it met- metabolic perturbation resistance? Maybe. Sounds- you coined the term here, so. <laughs> I don't know. Sounds fancy. But like that, if you if you make it part of key sessions that you're doing, and just doing one relatively fresh and one render somewhat more fatigued, that then you're not really making it, it not too invasive on your training program because you're going to do the efforts anyway. But then you just get some more information out about yeah out that yeah durability or their ability to do efforts towards the end of the ride. And like if you had a full data set for a whole year, obviously there's loads of analysis that you can do looking at power duration curves, how they drop after a certain amount of kilojoules per kilo. And Like we also did within this study, but then within a practical situation, you could also yeah try to try to monitor that by doing some of those yeah, key intervals in a relatively fresh or yeah more fatigue state
0: i um I was setting up benchmarks uh based off some of your studies just as far as knowing where to aim for and what to look for in 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 training when I am doing this similar type of work, so it's been really handy
1: yeah. One of the issues I see with doing efforts like that at the end of a fatiguing session is it would probably be hard to get the intra athlete validity or reliability there because the longer you exercise, the more necessarily, the more variability you put into the outcome just because there's so many more variables that get put into the exercise. So, you know, in the lab, if you're doing these long fatigue studies, you get put on a ergometer for like two to four hours or something like that. And you work at a constant work rate. And that just sounds like hell for, you know, putting somebody on that during their training sessions. So I guess, you know, there's that introducing that variability of trying to do those field tests there. Um, Do you have any concerns around that?
2: Well, I guess like in a race, they're also going to, the pre-fatiguing element is also going to be variable and not going to be constant. So Mm -hmm. yeah, I I do agree that if you want to compare sessions and you want to repeat that multiple times within the season, that I guess that pre-fatiguing element that you're going to do in training, at least try to keep what you do there relatively constant. So if you do like whatever, two times 20 minutes and two times 10 minutes blocks at a certain intensity as a pre-fatiguing element, then make sure the next time you do it, you do that similar because then it becomes yeah, um, easier to compare if his ability to, to, to do a key interval session or key interval set after that pre-fatiguing block is, it has improved. What should exactly be in that pre-fatiguing block? I'm also not sure. I think based on research, we also can't really say. My best guess at the moment would be to try to mimic the demands of the race to some extent. Obviously, you can't mimic the full demand of a race, but at least specifically for a climber, if you're trying to maybe mimic a mountain stage somewhat, try to expose them to similar intensities too, whilst for a climber, for a sprinter, that might be slightly different where you might do, yeah, you might simulate something as a intensity as part of a lead out or whatever to try to make it sort of rider specific. But yeah, I do agree that if you then choose with a, for a certain pre-fatiguing protocol that you try to
1: I think it was either Paolo, I'm almost like 90% to 75% sure it was Paolo that came up with a testing procedure for sprinters like that that would have like a pre-fatiguing portion that he based off of that last 10 or 15 minutes of what you would see in a world tour race. But I don't think it was long enough to actually fatigue them, even though it was a pretty hard effort, which good i mean that's what you want right at a world tour level you want them to be able to get through a 10 minute hard hard session and then still be able to sprint at the end of it as much as they could in the in the start of it but i guess that's a good place to start is like well it needs to be fatigue them more than this test does um because they weren't able to see any differences between the sprint power before and after so if you want to see it fatigue it may maybe double it or quadruple it or something like that so i think it was only like 10 or 15 minutes and it was go interesting like kind of ramp and i think it might have had some efforts in it but yeah so i wanted to mention that I guess in case you hadn't heard of that test or that paper before so at least there's someone is someone else is kind of out there thinking like that but yeah it, it, it gets into a kind of a, uh, a can of worms but the other thing is like yeah it kind of makes me wonder if how much do uh, i don't know do we have evidence to show that maybe if you lengthen the test out to like an hour test, the person that has a higher hour power is going to be able to be more resistant in those situations? Do is it, I wonder if there's like some kind of test that, or maybe some kind of variable or something like that, that we can get around those, that kind of testing that we could be like, oh, there's just this high correlation to... A, a ratio of muscle fiber type to to VO two max or something like that.
2: Yeah, I'm, I, like I'm, I don't have the answer to which physiological variable per se would be yeah the biggest determinant uh, for that. I think yeah, one I can think that the most basic thing that I can see looking at the data that I've seen over the last years is that just riders who've had a solid amount of years of very high training volume, like I don't know multiple years above thousand hours or something like that. They also tend to be more, um, they tend to have less of a drop in their fresh, from their fresh power output values within races or after previously accumulating some workload. So that's one mechanism, I guess, and that would explain why you would see differences with younger riders compared to more, yeah, to older riders or um, elite riders. So that, yeah, that. There are some, I think, just general training history and overall aerobic development and endurance capacity that those are variables that will contribute to it. But, yeah, I don't think we're from a research perspective or at the stage that we can really pinpoint one variable that, that you know, really yeah, can help with improving that, I guess. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, I don't, Damien, do you have any... Uh, I know you had a bunch of questions for day, Joe, and we just got into like science nerdy stuff here at
0: yeah, I think well, I think we've covered it all. We, we, for me, the interesting stuff was just a, a bit inside the team structure, how training's set up, um, philosophy around that, and uh, it all seems like it's. I don't know how it, it seems like it's it reflects a lot of the work you've been doing up until this point anyway. So you've been able to bring a lot of what you've been looking at over the last five years into your practice, and uh, and contribute that way. So I don't really have anything. Outside of that.
1: Yeah. And it gets down to the whole point of the podcast is cycling performance. It seems like such a small niche thing. Well, I think as everyone here can attest to, there's more papers on it than I don't know if I'll ever be able to read in my lifetime. I could probably consume papers every single day and still not know every single aspect of this very kind of niche. Area of cycling performance. And that's to me is what's super interesting about it and trying to figure it all out and build that model in my head of what is the best approach here. So maybe end it with that in terms of I'm happy to have someone else on the show that obviously thinks that way too. Someone that says, I have these questions around elite level athletes. I'm going to put in the work and get down and dirty it and do those massive analyses. And um, here's me saying thanks for putting all that effort in. And one of the things I mentioned to Damien before is researchers do not get enough thanks for what they put out there. And I, I don't think people outside of the research world really realize the hours and hours and hours it goes into getting those papers. So yeah, thanks for giving us that insight into that. Definitely
2: yeah yeah thanks for the kind words but i I think i've also maybe just a little side note to that is i've been quite fortunate to have been able to work with some great great collaborators over the years too um so Mm -hmm. and that has for sure helped like from my early days onwards i yeah i I was able to was fortunate enough to work with people that also wanted to look into that professional cycling team so i worked at mature high quite a bit when i started out and yeah i just have been lucky also to some extent to have been able to work with um, like-minded people that are just passionate about the sport and about research and trying to bring those two together. Um, So it's yeah, that has for sure uh, helped a lot along the way. Yeah.
1: And my last question is what's next? What's uh, working with DSM and and just doing the whole like one foot in academia, one foot in uh, the high performance world? And just kind of going along that trajectory would you like to be managing teams or being a professor like, or they could go
2: either way, I guess. Yeah. From my perspective, I'm I'm, uh, pretty happy with where I'm at at the moment. So like, it's the, I guess the most, the thing I have the most passion for is just being in the training process and being a trainer and working with the athletes and writing the training programs. And uh, just over the recent years, I've found that that's really where my passion lies. The science bit I also have for sure a passion about, and I will keep continuing doing that. And PhD students to supervise, and I'll continue to yeah be active within the academic front too, and just trying to sort of have have both. But yeah, I'm just trying to become a, I just yeah want to become an even want to become a better trainer than what I am right now. So I just try to keep learning and keep developing, and that's for me the main goal of the next years. And just yeah, with the positions I have right now, I'm, I'm pretty happy where I'm at.
0: right that's awesome it was awesome and after getting off the call with Dejo I was left with a better appreciation of how sharp hardworking, and inquisitive he is I also got a real sense of how having him in your corner whether as a coach a mentor or a colleague would really be an asset but the best thing of all is that we also get to benefit from his traits and interests meaning cycling performance is better off for having someone like Dejo contributing to the collective knowledge base we all share. Thanks for all your hard work, Dejo. And thanks for jumping on to talk to mostly Jason about all things cycling performance. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like this episode, please share it with one person who you think would find it valuable. Thanks. Thanks.